Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin' Radio each week. This week, we chatted about a possible serial killer stalking Chicago's streets, learned about colonialism, and pondered over if there is such a thing as too much gore in horror fiction. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for February 26, 2021. Mario Smith spoke to Ben Austin about his new article, Have You Seen These 51 Women? Austin tells Mario that Chicago may have a serial killer stalking vulnerable women and discusses why that is finally causing the police to pay attention. Austin also discusses his work in public housing. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2. On the Zoom, as it were, is acclaimed author Ben Austin, author of the book High Risers. He's also penned an amazing story that was in last week's uh, reader for the folks here in Chicago. Um, called 51. Uh, ben, what's the title of the article again? 51 Missing Women? Where are have they? You, Something to that effect? Have you seen these 51 women? And then, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, so just for a little backstory for folks who aren't from Chicago, or in case you're here and you forgot, for a good 10 years, maybe a little bit longer than that, there were women turning up missing in the city, being found in garbage cans and in other very scandalous places. And there is a perception in the community that there is a serial killer in Chicago, Illinois. That hasn't been proven or disproven. And this article that Ben wrote for the reader is stunning in its scope and that this is still, a lot of these cases, if not all of them, are still cold cases. And I wanted Ben to come on the show today um, to talk about that. We'll talk about high rises a little bit, and uh, I'll try to jam as much of this as I can before Ben has to jet on us. Thanks for being on the show, man. I appreciate it. You know, you know, talking to you is an honor and a privilege. <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> Thanks, man. I really, really do appreciate this, though. And uh, I, like you, as a back, another backstory, cannot wait until we can go to the baseball uh, game again and hang out. Truth. <laughs> that will be so much fun. We'll have to drag Jamie with us, too. Yeah, Tony LaRusso aside, it's going to be a good season. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. So let me let me cut right to the chase. The The article kind of surprised a lot of people in that folks forgot about these women um, who I remember one day on my way to work one morning years ago, hearing about a woman on Wentworth, I think it was, uh, that they found in a garbage can that had been set on fire. And yeah. it was like, it was, it was a story, then it wasn't. And that seemed to raise a lot of alarms within me. Why has this been probably the most notorious group of cold cases that we may have seen in this city? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a complicated question. And I, and I, I felt like it was complicated going into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is sort of like taking this uh, in a different direction in a way, but, you know, if you're working on any aspect of, of sort of injustice and, and racial injustice in this city, you're both worried about, uh, you know, projecting a kind of Chirac image of, of like, you know, you know, just getting into the salaciousness for its own reason of, of the violence. And you're also really worried about how ignored it is, that nobody mm-hmm. is, is seeing anything. And so those, those are happening at the same time, right? In the same way that you can be in a community and feel like you're both over-policed and under-policed. Like right. you, you, can be, you can be seen in a way that's, that's destructive and completely not seen in a way that's destructive. And so these cases, 51 cases that, that 
uh, that built up over 20 years. It goes back to 2001, actually. Mm. And, you know, in a way, they're just the, the tip of, a, of a, a larger problem. So, so how do you talk about them? Uh, you know, starting in about 2017, 2018, a guy uh, named Thomas Hargrove, uh, who runs a group called the Murder Accountability Project, he said that they're linked in my database, uh, these unsolved crimes, and there might be a serial killer. And that suddenly brought attention to these that had, had not been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so, and, go ahead, Mark. No, I was going to ask about Mr. Hargrove, because there is a section in the, uh, the, in the story where you, where you talk about him. He, he, uh, he's a former journalist and, and what have you. And he specialized in serial killers following the arrest of Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer. Yeah. Was, his, was his estimation that Chicago had a serial killer? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, feels, he still feels certain. He, he, he thinks maybe not all these 51 women were killed by the same person, but he feels very strongly there's a serial killer. You know, and he, he helped identify somebody uh, in, in Gary, Indiana, who linked maybe, you know, several murders together. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, like, he, here, here's like the backstory in a way, is that in a, in a way it's really messed up that we only pay attention if there's a serial killer. Like, like 51 women getting killed, there, there are people who are, there's so much violence in here and how do we pay attention to, to just the everyday stuff? And so right. and suddenly, suddenly the term serial killer gets bandied about and there's a tension. So I wasn't breaking ground. I mean, so, so once, once he started you know, reporting that there was a serial killer, there was this burst of attention and mm -hmm. people started to care in a way and think like, oh, a serial killer. You know, we got, we got Netflix was about serial killers. We got true crime drama. We're interested. You sensationalized it. it yeah. Sensationalized. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, no. If, if there isn't a dog in a Zoom now, I'm offended. <laughs> I need a dog in every Zoom. And I know that dog, so it's fine. Yeah. And so, you know, this, a serial killer, as I write in the article, is also a kind of metaphor for, mm -hmm. for a lot of other fears and a lot of other problems. And I started, so, so, Community groups, once this news came out, started mobilizing and saying, like, man, this is messed up. 20 years, nobody paid attention. The body count started, you know, adding up and nobody did anything. No, no public emergency alarms were sounded. The investigations, you know, Chicago cops solved like under 30% of crimes and uh, homicides in the city. And the rate is half for black people as it is for white people. And so, yeah. you know, we need, you know, what's going on here. But then I would mm -hmm. go to these protests and often it wasn't about the 51 murders. It was about other missing women, other murders that weren't part of the 51, where they knew who the person was, but the guy wasn't arrested or he hadn't been convicted yet. Or it was about housing or it, it was it was about abandonment in all sorts of other ways. And, you know, that got me thinking about how this story is also encapsulates so many of the problems in the city. Why? Do you think the Chicago Police Department has had such a hard time in putting together a solid case? And, and have they ever identified a person that may be the serial killer? Well, I mean, so, so they're, no, not at all. They don't think that there's a serial killer at all. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't see the connection. And so they, uh, I think it was late last year, 
one of the 51 women, they, they arrested somebody for the killing, you know, and they, they said they looked through the connections. So they opened up a cold case investigation of all these of all these cases after the public pressure. Uh, mm-hmm. and so they, they went back through them. They 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 re-interviewed suspects and witnesses. Uh, you know, there are some things that are just so structurally messed up, like um, they had DNA samples for only 20 of the women of these 51 women. They hadn't even collected DNA samples for for more than half of them. So, you know, that that it, that's how hard it is to solve a crime. We all know that, you know, that the distrust that the, the police have built up, that the people in the community don't feel uh, a great sense to to assist in these cases because they don't think much is going to come of it. Um, so arrest was finally made of one guy uh, who was in a relationship with one of these women. And at the time of her death, um, you know, there were witnesses who said they saw a bloody trail leading from her bedroom to his back door. They saw him throw away his mattress uh, and they were last seen together. And it took three years to arrest him because uh, DNA wasn't even tested for all that time or it didn't come back for the testing. Hmm. This guy was still out on the street for three years after after the police were like, that's our guy. Amazing. Um, and, and I also learned in your story that some I knew, and we've talked about on this show uh, ad nauseum, the city spends $1.6 billion. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but it just it, it tickles me now that they spent $1.6 billion on law enforcement here. Yeah. The mayor just gave up a gigantic chunk of COVID relief money to the Chicago Police Department, yet these 51 murders are hanging out. And also, um, there's a, uh, and, and not that these two things are related, there may be some some talk about the monitors, the ankle monitors not working. One of the young men that has been arrested and charged with 11 felonies for the carjackings that have been taking place in the city had on an ankle monitor, but, but he was going all around Chicago working uh, basically in, 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 evol- in elevated crimes. He's 14 years old. My, my, my point that I'm trying to make to bring this all back, what is it about the Chicago Police Department that they cannot seem to effectively perform their job considering that they have one of the largest, if not the largest budgets in the state? Yeah, I mean, they definitely have the largest budget in the state. You mean in the nation? I mean, percentage-wise, it's way up there per per officer per capita. It's forty percent of our entire city budget, which is just it's it's mind blowing. Uh, and you know, and then and then when there were reviews about how to do things better, better like how to bolster its homicide division, which there was this extensive year-long review that just finished up uh, at the beginning of last year. Um, you know, those things cost more money. To yeah. suddenly like add more detectives to 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 make a cold case division, and for many of us in the public, we're like more money. We're going to give you more than forty percent. Like like there are other ways to 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 tackle um, law enforcement and and I mean not law enforcement, you know, keeping order um, than investing in in policing. You know, like like we can think of other ways to to invest in the structural deficiencies and first responders who aren't armed policemen, um, how you deal with people who are st- uh, suffering from mental illness or from drug addiction, that, you know, what you do in schools with counselors, I mean, those kinds of things. 
um, which we desperately need and, and where that money could prevent crime uh, in, in, in different ways. Um, yeah, Mario, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, one of the things that, that I, I think about with this story and these 51 murders is mm-hmm. that the, the 51 murders are representative of a kind of, you know, crimes, especially against women and black women, people on the margins um, who are who are constantly in danger and who the, the violence against them doesn't elicit much of a response. And, and that's bigger, much, much bigger than these 51 cases. Right. And, and it, it, it's bigger in a way that you and I hear a lot, which is like, it also enters into this realm of like conspiracy theory, where we're like, we're hearing, trying to hear explanations. A serial killer is not that different than hearing about like, what's going on with missing women in these white vans? Like what's up with the white vans and, and just like snatching girls off the street? Is that really happening? Yeah. Uh, you know, like Kanika Jenkins, this, this, this young woman who went missing in, in Rosemont at a hotel, like it sort of, it, it added a lot of fire to this idea that people were being um, killed for their harvested organs. Like, I, I don't believe in these theories, but I know that they, they're, they're trying to make sense of, of the, both the senselessness and the, just the um, ubiquity of, of this violence. Um, and so a serial killer also falls into that. Like maybe there's a serial killer and, you know, or maybe Chicago is so messed up that it looks like one, that, right. like, like, like that you would ignore this many murders and they would go uninvestigated. Like that's, that's also as much of a problem. And in a way, either way, the conditions in which that would exist are real. <laughs>
I-94's book with Chelsea Summers about her debut novel, A Certain Hunger, a feminist take on horror. Summers chatted about her days working for downtown New York publishers, her distaste for food writing, and her puzzlement at editors who thought her book had too much gore for a horror novel. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Let's start, though. This book is, you know, when I read it, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, John Lanchester's A Debt to Pleasure, which came out in uh, the 90s, uh, Booker Prize winner. Um, It's one Mm -hmm. of my favorite books, actually. So when I read this, uh, I was like, oh, you know, this is kind of a a female take on sort of the same thing. Um, I don't think I'm spoiling anything because uh, the the body count starts quite quickly in this book mm-hmm. by saying that your your lead character uh, is going to go through a, a series of uh, innocent young men and then cook them and eat them. And uh, she, this is both a satire, I think, in a sense, of the overwrought food writing that we sometimes see in um, hip magazines, as well as kind of a more feminist take on... Um, a murder mystery. It's rare to see a female cannibal protagonist. At least I cannot remember the last time I read about one. Can you talk a little bit, Chelsea, about um, what your aims were for this book and, and tell us a little bit about the background of it? Yeah, well, thanks so much for bringing up A Debt to Pleasure. It's one of my all-time favorite books. Um, and it made such an enormous impression upon me that I haven't revisited it since it came out because I'm afraid I won't love it as much. Um, In writing this book, I didn't really know what I had until I finished it, which I think is sometimes true for writers. I I didn't like put my hands on my hips and was like, I'm going to write a book about that's a satire of foodieism. Um, Rather, I had a sort of artistic break and I really needed to express myself and I just was like, this is the story, I'm doing it. Um, And it came about because I was going to Italy in 2011. My job at the time sent me to Italy. And a friend of mine was like, oh, you can write your own Eat, Pray, Love. I was like, yeah, I'll write Love, Pray, Eat. Um, And then I was like, actually, that's an awesome idea. And uh, yeah, so that was essentially the, the justice of the book. Did you did you think about John Lanchester's book at all when you were writing this? Uh, I mean, I, I just again, Death to Pleasure is actually one of my favorite books as well, and I remember uh, made a very strong impression on me. So it was hard for me, in a sense, when I was reading the book, to put you know John's book to the side, in a sense. Hmm. I would say that John Lanchester's book is the book I would write if I was smart enough to write it. I think he's just genius and it was an extraordinary novel um i think for any writer it's hard to divorce yourself and your creativity from the layers and layers and strata of things both amazing and horrible and enraging and whimsical that have touched you Um, the two books that were most in my mind as I was writing this were Eat, Pray, Love and American Psycho. And then probably the third one would be the, uh, Hannibal series, which I love. Um, and you're right that I did want to, I did think about this being a, an ardently feminist take on 
a crime story uh, and that I wanted to put feminist thought at the center of, of the story, but do it in a way that wasn't like annoying. I hope. Although I guess a lot of people are annoyed by the book, so whatever. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I, I don't think the book was annoying. I think I think Dorothy was unlikable for sure, um, in mm -hmm. the same way Patrick Bateman was. And the funny thing is, though, about both of those novels, and I, I'm a huge uh, fan of Ellis until about 15 years ago. I'm not a big fan of his later novels, and his political writing can be a little unsettling. But this, anyway... Um, but as I was reading, you know, I, I end, just like I did in American Psycho, you end up, I, and I don't know if everyone's like this, but I was like rooting for Dorothy. I mean, we know early on that she's incarcerated, but um, mm -hmm. just like Bateman, the, the me generation world that he lived in this um, pseudo intellectual foodie world that D Dorothy lives in, I ended up rooting for, um, for both of them because it's just, you know, both of them are just talking about pretentiousness and how to fight back against that, and both of them chose. Well, I, I, I identified with their anger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I hate foodie writing. I'm going to just come out with it right now. I, I don't read it. Um, I, I, I'm like, I'm not going to spend my time reading about a plate of food. Um, and I know, you know <laughs> a, a lot of people don't agree with me on that, but it's just it is absolutely not my thing. And um, But as to going through this, I was actually able to – uh, learn a little bit about foodie culture while people get ice picks in their necks. So fiction, it's like, oh, fiction, it came from my brain. Um, unconsciously, I think I imbued the book with my own feelings of frustration of having, uh, you know, relationships and love affairs end. And then when they end, it's just over. Like this person that you've had... Um, all this intimate time with shared your most n naked literally and meta you know metaphysically and metaphorically self um they're just gone from your life and i've always had a hard time processing like well what do i do with these feelings how do i how do i acknowledge this loss how do i you know get past my feelings of anger and and recognize that this is something that's special that has evaporated um and so the the novel is very much a way of coping with these feelings of these people who with whom i had it, and there's no there no one-to-one -one correlations and i didn't kill and eat anybody but mm -hmm. you know relationships that i've had where that they were complex, they were conflicted, they were, you know, fraught, and yet I loved them. And after they were gone from my life, I was like, well, I'd still like to have them with me. I just don't really want to spend any more time with them. Dorothy, I, I, that, was kind of, that was kind of the fun of reading the book for me, is trying to figure out whether or not, her, whether or not she was really in control. And mm -hmm. um, I wanted to know... If you had your mind, if you were certain about her in that sense while you were writing, or if she kind of danced around, and she was hard to get a hold of while you were writing her. Uh, well, first to Hannibal, um, the 
I, I like I love the series. I love the television series. I I love all things as problematic as they are and they really are. Um the I it's a it's a horror genre, it's a horror series that's very much part of my blood at this point. Um, but one thing that really annoyed me about Hannibal is he's always really good at everything. And, you know, having him played by Mads Mikkelsen, who can actually cook. And, I love that guy. You know, yeah, yeah, he's so awesome. He's a beautiful um, man. And he, he really is. You know, like, like what, what can't Mads do? Um, and really annoyed me. Like, there's, there's a thing, there's a thing about being... S- just flawless that that I found really annoying. So it was important to me to make Dorothy <clears throat> very flawed. So she's not as smart as she thinks she is. She's not as good at being a murderer as she thinks she is. She's um she's probably not as good a food critic, I don't know, as she thinks she is. <laughs> um and she's not a very real you know trustworthy narrator which of course you wouldn't expect from somebody who's a you know a psychopathic cannibal but um i think that her sense of being in control is something that waffles it it wobbles through the through the course of the book there are moments when she's very much not in control and she doesn't know how to feel about that. But she also likes it. I could relate to that part of her. Is yeah. She like she almost puts herself in situations purposefully to be out of control. Yeah. And um I guess it should be more eerie that I identified with her. Huh. <laughs> I don't I mean I, I think that that's a very human thing though. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah you yeah. know like I get a lot of comments about, you know, I didn't want to like her this much. I didn't want to, you know, this this book made me really hungry. I'm very troubled by that. <laughs> um, and uh, I I just think it's you know, it's it's a human it's a human thing. You're immersed in this woman's voice. It's very seductive. You're part of her story. She's holding you close to her breast. It's a it's a whole big thing, and of course you feel these things. What's this? I'm going to teach you how the recorder works, Kyle. Well, it looks like I got the aptitude for such technologically advanced learning. Jamie, want another one? Yeah, Eric, thanks. Kyle? Nah, I'm good. You don't look good. His producer quit on him. No, I mean, he looks like he's had a few, but he hasn't ordered anything from me today. Uh, no, no, I ain't done what you think I done. What are you talking about? Sometimes he BYOBs. You got anything to hand over? I've been coming here since before the Mashuski tribe called this place their own, mind you. Ah, whatever, Kyle. Listen, Kyle, I know you miss John, but you need to focus on size matters. Yeah, more like nothing matters. Stop it. I know someone who would love to... Here you to... go, Jamie. Thanks, Eric. Listen, I, I know it. someone I who would love to help out, but you need to be a little more Hold independent. On. Before you throw out the ultimatum, gotta do something while old banana brain ain't looking yeah. at that. Did you just take a swig out of a medicine bottle? Yeah, don't say nothing to nobody. I got my lumpin' bubbles in here. Lumpin' bubbles? Yeah, lump. Are you not familiar with the cannon? Lumpin' bubbles, my very own concoction has heard on Size Matters Episode 3. Go back and listen to it. It smells like dish soap. That mostly is. It doubles as bubble fluid for children and a discreet adult drink. You are drunk, aren't you? 
Oh, good question, Jamie. He's actually entered an altered state of emotional consciousness. And I told him if he ever brings a hooch in here again, I would ban him for life. Who's life? You ain't seen nothing. I've been standing right over this the whole time. Yeah, way to be a creep. <sighs> Pal doesn't want to learn how to use the portable. He's right, I don't. You're upset about John, aren't you? Yeah, I was. Dude, move on, man. Get out there and learn how this stupid little recorder works and record stuff. I don't know. I do. I'm going to do the dumbest thing since opening my own radio station. I'm going to let you pick the next producer for Size Matters. Whoa, 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 Ed, no, that's, that's a little too much control here. No, it isn't. It's Kyle's turn to prove himself. That's right, I can do it. I... <laughs> he just burped up a bubble, look. Sorry, I just... Oh, no, don't pop the bubble. Code 74. Uh, code 74. This is not a drill, oh, I'm people. So no one. Sorry. Pop Ed, I'm so the sorry. bubble. Continue no. to the exit. Just please Turn exit the bar. I'll take care of it. I got it. Pop I got it. Oh, 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 my God. I that stuff. My nostrils are burning. What did I say? Just move. Get out of my way. This week on The Biden Files, Ted Cruz skips town and returns to a firestorm. Trump's legal woes deepen as the Supreme Court denies him relief. The GOP attempts and fails to derail a rescue bill. Dominion files more suits. Trump says he's the 2024 nominee. And we pass a half million deaths from COVID in the United States. These are The Biden Files. Day 31, February 19th. President Biden declared Texas and Oklahoma as disaster areas as the power crisis started to abate in the Lone Star State. 13 million Texans are under a boil water order as burst pipes and frozen wells have left water supplies there hobbled. Some 800 water providers are reporting problems in that state. Austin's reservoirs have been emptied due to leaks. Houston and San Antonio say they are struggling to deliver water to businesses and homes. As the political blowback in Texas intensifies against that largely Republican-led state, Senator Ted Cruz was seen hopping a flight to Cancun, Mexico. The ensuing furor saw him apparently cancel that trip and return sheepishly to the state. Cruz then publicly blamed his daughters for making him go on the trip and called members of the media asses for covering his fiasco. The U.S. officially returned to the Paris Climate Accord four years after the Trump administration abandoned the global climate pact. Biden has promised to chart a path toward net zero U.S. emissions by 2050. The USA is committed to reduce emissions by 25% in three years. Currently, the United States is on track to hit just 17%. In a related story, it was revealed that Tesla's most profitable venture is the selling of its electric credits. Nearly 20% of the automaker's profit comes from the sale of regulatory credits to other more polluting automakers. President Biden also looked this week to mend fences in Europe. In a press conference, he told NATO leaders, quote, I know the past few years have been strained and tested with our transatlantic relationship, but the U.S. is determined to re-engage with Europe to consult with you to earn back our position of trusted leadership. Biden also warned the world faces an inflection point. Autocracy. Biden specifically noted activities in China, Russia, and the Eastern European states that were former Soviet satellites. Biden also signaled he is willing to restart the Iran nuclear deal that the Trump administration abandoned. It is unclear if Iran is willing to discuss Tehran's nuclear program. Iran has been moving forward with nuclear enrichment, but also has been heavily strained by punishing sanctions. 
And the Manhattan District Attorney has hired an expert on white-collar crime as part of their investigation into Trump and the Trump Organization. Mark Pomerantz has deep experience investigating and defending white-collar and organized crime cases. New York is investigating possible tax and bank-related fraud, including whether the Trump Organization inflated the value of its properties to obtain loans and tax benefits. Day 32, February 20th. A venture capitalist who donated nearly $1 million to Trump's inaugural committee has been sentenced to 12 years in prison for illegal campaign contributions. Ahmad Zaveri pled guilty to tax evasion, filing false foreign agent registration records, and providing illegal campaign cash while lobbying high-level U.S. officials. Zaveri funneled cash from foreign entities to the Trump administration, including a $900,000 contribution to the Trump inaugural committee. Zaveri also made donations to Lindsey Graham and several Democratic politicians, apparently on behalf of the state of Bahrain, as well as an indicted Ukrainian official. Zaberry was also fined $2 million in order to pay $16 million in restitution. The U.S. Capitol Police suspended six officers with pay for their actions during the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Another 29 officers are under investigation. Of growing concern to investigators is police ties to far-right groups. At least one police officer was seen directing rioters through that building on the day. Another posed for selfies with the insurrectionists. The Justice Department charged six people suspected of being members of the Oath Keepers with conspiracy and sedition. According to the indictment, the Oath Keepers began working to undermine President Biden's win within a week of Election Day, setting up training sessions for what they termed urban warfare and riot control, and discussing a plot to ferry heavy weapons into Washington by using the Potomac River. A defamation lawsuit brought against CNN by Devin Nunes was tossed out by a Manhattan judge. That lawsuit sought more than $435 million in damages. It was rejected by U.S. District Judge Laura Taylor Swain, who said Nunes had failed to request a retraction in a timely fashion or adequately state his claims. Nunes had alleged the cable news company intentionally published a false news article and engaged in a conspiracy to defame him and damage his personal and professional reputation. Nunes is famous for suing and losing a defamation case against a parody Twitter feed that made fun of his alleged farming experience. Two ice rinks in Central Park will close this year after New York City moved and contracts with the Trump Organization following the Capitol riot. Wolman Rink and Lasker Rink, which the Trump Organization has operated since the 1980s, will close at the end of business at the end of February. The Trump Organization blamed the city for giving the company a tight deadline to clear out. Day 33, February 21st. Two moderate Republicans and a key Democrat said they would not support the nomination of Neera Tandon to lead the Office of Management and Budget, most likely tanking her chances of confirmation. Susan Collins and Mitt Romney joined Joe Manchin in saying they would oppose Tandon's nomination, citing hundreds of inflammatory posts she had made on social media. Some have noted the irony of the opposition of Tandon given the Republican Party's own inflammatory use of social media. Tandon's confirmation hearing was subsequently postponed. A member of the far-right Oath Keepers charged with rioting at the Capitol met with Secret Service agents before that siege and received a VIP pass to the rally where Trump spoke. A defense attorney for Jessica Watkins said that the Oath Keeper was in D.C. to provide security for the speakers at the January 6th rally, and she stood within 50 feet of the stage. Watkins is one of nine people linked to the Oath Keepers charged with conspiring to block the certification of election results in the most sweeping indictment prosecutors have issued so far in relation to that riot at the Capitol. 
Also, the Justice Department and the FBI are now investigating communications between the rioters who attacked the Capitol and former Trump advisor Roger Stone. It is unclear if Stone knew about or took part in plans to disrupt the certification of Biden's victory. Trump commuted Stone's sentence in July and pardoned him in late December. In a highly unusual move that does not appear to have been vetted, an Israeli billionaire named Dan Gertler saw harsh sanctions slapped on him for his trade in blood diamonds in the Congo lifted just days before Trump left office. Gertler, a mining magnate who is alleged to have made some $100 million in bribes in the Democratic Republic of Congo, had been slapped with stiff sanctions that cut off his access to the international banking system and froze money held in U.S. banks. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin granted Gertler a one-year arrangement that gives him access to that money and allowed him once again to do business with financial institutions. The move has the Biden administration scrambling to see if they can undo it and has raised questions about why Gertler got the treatment in the first place. Day 34, February 22nd. The United States has hit 500,000 fatalities from COVID. No other country on the planet has suffered as many deaths in the pandemic. The death total exceeds battlefield deaths from all major American wars in the 20th century combined. Experts project another 100,000 deaths in the coming months. Vaccination of Americans has also been slowed by the cold weather across the nation. Just 5% of the United States has been fully vaccinated. The Supreme Court rejected a last-ditch attempt by Trump to shield his financial records, issuing a brief and unsigned order requiring his accountants to turn over tax and other records to prosecutors in New York State. The Supreme Court's order was a decisive defeat for Trump, who had gone to extraordinary lengths to keep his tax returns and related documents secret. There were no dissents. In a statement, Trump claimed this investigation is just a continuation of the greatest political witch hunt in the history of our country. It just never ends. Trump added that Democrats were to blame for a fishing expedition. Dominion Voting Systems has sued Mike Lindell, the chief executive of MyPillow, alleging he defamed Dominion with baseless claims of election fraud involving its voting machines. The company is seeking more than $1.3 billion in damages. The suit alleges that MyPillow's defamatory marketing campaign with promo codes like Fight for Trump and QAnon increased the company's sales by 30 to 40 percent. Lindell claimed, quote, I'm very happy that they've done this. I'm ready to go to court. I have all the evidence that anyone would ever want to see. Judge Merrick Garland said the U.S. faces a more dangerous period from domestic extremists than it faced at the time of the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. He also praised the early stages of the investigation into white supremacists and others who stormed the Capitol, saying, quote, it would be my first priority and my first briefing when I return to the department if I am confirmed. Judge Garland also vowed to uphold the independence of a Justice Department that has suffered deep politicization under the Trump administration. I do not plan to be interfered with by anyone. And in Texas, residents have been hit with extreme electric bills in the wake of cascading power grid failures. Texas's unregulated market left some customers paying as much as $100 an hour for power. That led to bills that topped $16,000. Governor Greg Abbott has since said Texans should not get stuck for the bills, which have only added to the fiasco in that state. Day 35, February 23rd. Anchories began on Capitol Hill over the January 6th riot. Three former top Capitol security officials and the chief of the Washington, D.C. police blamed federal law enforcement and the Defense Department for intelligence failures and for the slow authorization of the National Guard, saying, quote, these criminals came prepared for war. Former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sun told senators, quote, none of the intelligence we received predicted what actually occurred. Sund also said he witnessed insurrectionists assaulting officers not only with their fists, but also with pipes, barriers, flags, and flagpoles. 
when New York Attorney General Letitia James called a clear disappointment. Police officers in Rochester, New York, who placed a mesh hood on a black man last year, will not be charged in his death. The killing of that man, Chicago native Daniel Prude, touched off nationwide protests. The Rochester Police Department also sought to conceal the circumstances of his death, leading to the dismissal of the city's police chief. James called the grand jury verdict evidence of, quote, an unwillingness in the criminal justice system to hold law enforcement officers accountable. Also, a federal grand jury was impaneled in Minneapolis as the Justice Department has opened an investigation into former police officer Derek Chauvin. Chauvin is facing state murder charges in the death of George Floyd. His death, of course, sparked weeks of unrest across the globe. A federal investigation into Floyd's death began under Trump, but was pushed aside as the former administration chose to vilify demonstrators agitating for police reform. President Biden is now preparing sanctions and other measures to punish Moscow for the devastating solar wind cyber attack and the near-fatal poisoning of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Those other measures appear to include cyber retaliation and defensive measures aimed at making it harder for adversaries to compromise federal and private sector networks. Former Senator David Perdue of Georgia has decided he will not run against incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock in 2022, just a week after Perdue announced he had filed paperwork for a possible new campaign and just days after a visit to Trump. Perdue called it a personal decision, not a political one, but his meeting with Trump did not go well. Trump apparently was solely focused on retribution in that meeting, particularly against Senator Mitch McConnell and Governor Brian Kemp. Trump spent much of his conversation making clear his determination to unseat Kemp next year. Trying to navigate the feud was deeply unappealing to Purdue, according to aides. And Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican who's close with the right-wing talk show host Rush Limbaugh, said he would direct Florida state flags to be lowered to half-staff in his memory. That honor is usually reserved for well-known public officials, members of the military, and law enforcement officers who died in the course of duty. Several mayors and Nikki Frigg, the Florida Agricultural Commissioner, said they would refuse. Day 36, February 24th. In a tense hearing, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy told a House panel his forthcoming strategic plan for the U.S. Postal Service would permanently slow first-class mail and remove a significant amount of mail from air transport. House members seemed shocked by that plan, which would end two-day first-class service. DeJoy also testified the post office is $9 billion in the hole and would look to undertake further cuts. In an implicit rebuke while DeJoy was testifying, President Biden announced he would nominate a former U.S. Postal Service executive, a leading voting rights advocate, and a former postal union leader to the mail service's governing board. Biden has also been urged to remove DeJoy, who was nominated by Trump and has been implicated in slowing mail during the November elections. The FDA now looks set to clear the vaccine made by Johnson & Johnson for use in the U.S. after a panel found it was safe and largely effective. That shot has certain advantages over vaccines currently in market. It is based on an older technology. It can be given in a single shot and does not require low temperature storage. However, the J&J shot is also significantly less effective in clinical trials at around 66% compared to Pfizer and Moderna's 95%. That would put the Johnson & Johnson shot around the range normally given to flu vaccines. Multiple health officials now say the highly contagious Kent and California variants are likely to fuel another surge of cases in just a matter of weeks in the U.S. However, the NIH has downgraded their fatality forecast slightly, and the CDC cautiously predicted we could see a bellwether moment of the pandemic by this summer. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance subpoenaed financial records related to Steve Bannon's crowdfunding of a U.S.-Mexico border wall effort. 
Bannon, a former advisor to Trump, was pardoned by him in a federal case involving alleged fraud on Bannon's part. But the move signals states are ramping up a criminal investigation into the one-time chief strategist. Pardons at the federal level do not affect state cases. Day 37, February 25th. President Biden formally reversed a series of executive actions taken by Trump, including a proclamation that blocked many green card applicants from entering the U.S. Trump issued that edict, claiming falsely it was keeping jobs from Americans. The practical effect, however, was instead to separate immigrant families. Biden also reversed a move to cut funding from several cities Trump had deemed lawless and anarchist jurisdictions, as well as a peculiar edict that mandated federal buildings should be designed in a classical aesthetic manner. New claims for unemployment fell last week in a sign that the labor market's recovery is continuing. However, unemployment in America has now hit 10%. Some 10 million jobs appear to be permanently lost. Against that backdrop, Congress is fighting over provisions in the Democrats' $1.9 trillion rescue package. The Senate parliamentarian will decide today whether certain provisions in the package, notably an effort to hike the minimum wage to $15 an hour, is allowed under a process known as budget reconciliation. Democrats are using reconciliation as it cannot be filibustered. Other issues include certain pension clauses and subsidies meant to help laid-off workers remain on their health insurance plans. Democrats want to fully pass that bill this week to avoid a lapse in federal unemployment benefits. The top ops official of the U.S. Capitol said the cost of the January 6th attack will exceed $30 million. Capitol is providing various mental health services, increasing security, and repairing statues and other art damaged in that riot. Trump will speak at the conservative event known as CPAC on Sunday in his first public appearance and lengthy address since he left the White House. Trump is expected to say he is the nominee for the Republican Party in 2024. He will also attack Biden's immigration policies, which have been aimed at undoing his own. The conference will be called America Uncanceled. Over half of all registered Republicans say they will quit the party if Trump formed a new one. 73% of those voters say President Biden wasn't legitimately elected. These are the Biden files. Chuck Mertz talked with historian Sibelo J. Nundlovo Gatcheni on colonialism's legacy of dehumanization. Nundlovo Gatcheni discussed how empire served to dehumanize waves of people across the globe and how that continues to influence societies to this day. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Welcome to This is Hell, Sibelo. Hello. Hi, hi. How are you? Good. It's great to hear your voice. You're sounding very clear. Uh, Sabello is currently research professor and director of scholarship at the Department of Leadership and Transformation in the principal and vice chancellor's office at the University of South Africa. His latest writing includes his book, 2018 book, The Decolonial Mandela. Peace, Justice, and the Politics of Life. You write the issue of black citizenship is both planetary and existential. It is planetary because it affects black people wherever they are located on the globe. It is existential because it dwells at the very heart of the meaning of black existence. How is, this is a really silly question to begin with, but I think it's a good basic question to start. How is black citizenship different from other citizenships? How is it different from white citizenship? In fact, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, the starting point is, is, is to, to, to go to the, to the foundational question of the meaning of being human as, as it emerges from uh, the dawn of uh, Euro and uh, North American modernity, whereby 
those with the <clears throat> uh, black skin color were actually pushed out of the human family into a subhuman category. And the, the second point being that colonialism itself was part of uh, <clears throat> part of uh, struggles over to who does the earth belong, as 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 Achilbembe will put it. So, in other words, those who were pushing the colonial agenda, they were claiming the the planet Earth as their own home, and they, they were making all others foreign to it. In other words, not part of people who are entitled to rights and uh, and the entitlements, and therefore those who were colonized, they were actually denied the whole uh, uh, identity of citizens and they were made into subjects. Hence, I argued that <clears throat> when we talk about black citizenship, we are really talking about an existential question, an existential question of, of, uh, of life itself, the life of black people. And uh, you can trace that history going as far back as the time of enslavement. Why is it that it was black bodies which were targeted for enslavement. That was not an accident of history, that was by design. And that was how imperial uh, <clears throat> uh, global designs worked to make other people uh, subhuman so that they are targets of enslavement, targets of uh, a genocide, targets of colonialism, and the targets of being providers of cheap labor. And uh, up to now, the struggles for being human entails the struggle for citizenship at a planetary scale. That would be my my response to your question. So I think that this is something that people don't understand, that they try to, they're in denialism, they try to convince themselves about a, a kind of a different past. You were mentioning the expulsion from the human family of black people, expelling them from the human family. I think that there's probably a lot of people who would think that's always been that way. This isn't anything that's new or any kind of new predicament that black people face around the world. How new is this concept of expelling black people from the human family? I think uh, if you if 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 there's people who have the mistaken identity, I'm sorry, the mistaken uh, perception that uh, uh, it has always been that since time immemorial. I think that would be very ahistorical. Uh, prior to the <clears throat> to the advent of colonial encounters, uh, various people across the indigenous people in the in the Americas, the the indigenous people in every part of the world, they were self-determining, and they were actually they never had this question of doubt whether they were human beings. The question of doubt of other people's humanity started at a particular moment in history. And that moment can be traceable to the to the dawn of from the 15th century onwards, uh, and that is when you have this idea of questioning the the encounters, the colonial encounters. Christopher Columbus coming to the to the to the Americas and beginning to question whether indigenous people were actually human beings, and then you begin to have this question of other people being indigenous and the others being something else. So I think what is needed is for us to be historical when we approach this question, because if we say it was like that uh, since time immemorial or since the time of Adam and Eve, we will actually be miss, uh, uh, missing something else about a particular civilization which emerges as Europe actually emerges into a, a, a dominant power uh, for the past 500 years.
So if we want to overcome the brutal and cruel legacy of colonialism, do we have to overcome this view of inhumanity in others? And is that the biggest obstacle to overcoming colonialism or whatever state colonialism is in today? And that is to overcome this view of the inhumanity in others. Indeed, the, the, the question of, of uh, how to liberate <clears throat> those who have been dominated for the past 500 years, is a, it's, a, it's a very complex struggle which needs to actually manifest itself at multiple levels. Of course, the question of, uh, of uh, being human is a central part of it because uh, the issue of colonialism, how it, 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 uh, it sustained itself, it sustained itself by inventing whiteness and the blackness. Whiteness as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a register of superiority and the blackness as a register of inferiority. And the, 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 that, that has been the, the central aspect of colonial governmentality, if I can use that word. But uh, there are other layers of it beyond the, <clears throat> the question of the human. The question of knowledges, which were also used to sustain that power structure this idea that knowledge from Europe is the only knowledge, knowledge is from other parts of the world are not knowledges per se, because if you deny people their humanity, fundamentally we have also denied them their knowledges because non-humans don't produce knowledge as, as we all know. Then there's a third aspect of it. And they, once they've pushed other people out of the human family, they also devised a governance structure, a power structure, to govern this, 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 this pyramidal system in which those with white skins are at the top echelons and the, those with the black skins are at the, at the lower echelons. And they each fundamentally therefore means when you do struggles for decolonization, you, you will need not to reduce it to only attainment of political independence. Because if you speak about attainment of political independence, we are fundamentally dealing with the question of the physical empire. And then you, you, you then ignore the metaphysical empire, you ignore the cognitive empire, which continues beyond the existence of the physical empire. So I think it is important that as we fight in the 21st century, we don't repeat a limited understanding of what decolonization is and what liberation is. We need really to gain a deeper understanding of it. Download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. Companies have these days with regards to how information is received, where information is hosted, how one can interact with ideas that right. uh, that are for one reason or other deemed uh, controversial or unacceptable. Right, right. The... Uh... The marketplace of ideas and how those are, are bought, sold, and shared. Right, and 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 specifically, and also what, stored. What came to mind with this is the um, complete internet scrubbing of Guru Jeffrey Shankar um, from the internet. Uh, Guru Shankar. Um, I haven't I haven't heard of this person in the in the first place, Rowan. That you're telling me they they got scrubbed from the internet. Absolutely, absolutely. That is what happened. They are one of the foremost. 
leaders in the meditative sciences, a real mm. forward-thinking individual right. uh, with a great deal of, uh, of work um, out there, both formal in terms of treatises and manifestos and informal in terms of posts made through various social media platforms. And mm. that is such a wellspring of wisdom and, and it, frankly, intelligence that has been completely and utterly removed by the powers that be, by these few companies that have a, uh, a stranglehold on the Internet. And it's, it's really quite frustrating. Really, there, there are companies that have gone out of their way to – not even out of their way. They, they, as, as a matter of – for whatever reason, they have deemed it appropriate to remove all mentions of a specific person in their scientific work – from the the entire internet. Well, it's just been forced underground, and I'll be the first to admit mm. that there has been a bit of controversy regarding um, uh, Guru Shankar. Oh. Uh, a tiny bit of that, and but what, that is that? not. Um, well, that's neither. Well, I should say the former Guru Shankar, um, and that's another tragedy. And this is that the man's not even here to defend himself. The man is no longer present in this plane, oh. in this existence. He to- hasn't been. He he didn't get his guruship taken from him. He's gotten his life taken from him. Well, one could look at it that way. I, I don't think it, having life taken is the word uh, that mm. I or Guru Shankar would approve of. It's no, certainly not. more of that spirit had been given to the Aether. I see. And so many of his followers and himself gave their spirit to the Aether. That's, that's the one thing that, that these these corporations couldn't take from him. No, they, they couldn't. But they are attempting to take away his legacy. And that really steams my beans, as a matter of fact. Mm. And what happened at the compound is of no concern to the credulity and what? the validity of the breakthroughs that he had shared well, and the workings. Ron, what, what, what did happen at the compound? Well... Guru Shankar and a number of his followers mm-hmm. gave their spirit to the Aether, and oh. as it was a conscious, no one, no one was forced against their will to do this. It was a I conscious, see. consensual decision made between a group of peers and their guru. But I, when, I when, and- when these sort of events occur, uh-huh. there is an out outsized response from those who are not, frankly, as enlightened as Guru Shankar or uh, his followers or myself, frankly. So this is so this is this is the reason that that they have been scrubbed is is because of uh... something that is totally and utterly irrelevant to the Ah, teachings at hand. Yes, of course. Yes. Eureka Cast Now broadcasting Saturdays 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.